Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Thank you for joining us today for our firm's March virtual First Friday free call-in. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to welcome you today to our first Friday. Thank you so much for being with us here today. I really enjoy teaching these first Friday classes where we can just take time to answer your questions at no charge. Looks like we already have about 46 people who joined us, so we're going to dig right in and get started. Remember that first Fridays are a great time to get your questions on Arizona HOA and condo law answered at no charge. Here's how our First Fridays is going to work today. If you haven't already done so, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then I'll answer every question between now and 10 a.m. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions that we receive, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live during the session, please be sure to include the name of your HOA or condo and your current role when you submit your question. Okay, let's get right into what we want to talk about today. First things first, I'm sure as all of us knew, we were horrified when we saw the Champlain Towers in Miami, Florida, or Surfside, Florida, apps when killing 98 people. And as you may know, in in December 2021, a grand jury report called for urgent, immediate, and sweeping reforms to ensure a similar catastrophe doesn't happen again. And there are definitely some valuable lessons for condominiums from this tragedy. However, there have been some industry reforms that I just want to mention during the first Friday call, and I'm going to be talking more about this on our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy in two weeks. But basically what's happened now is that many associations, many condominium associations in Arizona have received a request to complete a condominium project questionnaire addendum. And this is typically given to an association when there's going to be a refinance or a close of escrow. And the association is asked to provide information to the lender and the buyer. And basically, this is a direct result of the Surfside, Florida collapse, uh, tower collapse. And this triggered Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae to reevaluate and update their lending policies. So these new policies went into effect in January 2022, and it kind of caught everybody off guard and by surprise, frankly. And so many associations started contacting us in mid-January saying, what is this form and why are we required to fill it out with all these different questions and information about the physical condition of our condominium. So I just want to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about what's happening here, what's the backstory, and what your associations need to know if you decide to fill out this form. First, as I said, these new policies just went into effect for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And basically, they're concerned about giving loans to condominiums when there's significant deferred maintenance or material deficiencies in condominiums. 
And also when there is a directive from a regulatory agency to make a repair in the condo due to the condo being an unsafe condition and having material deficiencies. So basically we're seeing this form as a direct result of the collapse of the Champlain Towers condominiums in Florida. And it's going to be a federal, it's obviously a federal program, so it's going to be 50 state. And condos in Arizona are going to start seeing this form when there's a refinance or a close of escrow. And so what do Arizona associations really have to provide when they receive this form or when there's a resale or refinance of the property? So first things first, planned communities do not have to fill out this condo questionnaire. So just know that it wouldn't even make sense to fill it out because they're talking about maintenance things that are not responsibility of planned communities. But if the association is an Arizona condominium, whether or not to opt to fill out this form is really complicated. And one thing I just want to mention is that CAI, the Community Associations Institute, national think tank that provides free education to free information, and you can pay to have their education to association board members, owners, and managers. They have requested that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac withdraw this questionnaire until more information can be discussed. And so it appears that CAI is also very concerned about this condo questionnaire that the condos are receiving. Okay. In our opinion, condominium associations are under no legal obligation to complete this condominium project questionnaire addendum. Remember that under Arizona law, associations are only required to provide responses to, if you're a condominium or a planned community with over 50 lots or units, you're only required to provide disclosure information as required by Arizona statutes. And so the questions in the the new questionnaire that's been put out by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, they are different from what the Arizona requirements are right now. And we're going to be providing you a full listing of the statutes. We also have a great cheat sheet on disclosure fees. If you're interested in seeing that, that's on our webpage, okhelawfirm.com. And basically, the Arizona disclosure laws um, have been on the books for many years. You are required to fill out the paperwork when that request is given to an association when there's a sale, resale, or a refinance. So what are the implications if your condominium decides not to fill out the paperwork that's submitted to you by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? The implications are that it's possible that your owner or your future owner who's trying to get a loan through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, that they won't be able to get a loan through that avenue. And some escrows may fall through and owners could therefore be negatively impacted if they're unable to refinance their properties or have to refinance at a higher interest rate or maybe they can't get a conventional loan. And this kind of creates a tricky dilemma for associations. If associations that are condos don't respond to the condominium project questionnaire addendum, they may get pushback from their owners because the owners may be negatively impacted by the decision. But if they do fully respond, if the associations that are condominiums in Arizona do respond to the condominium project questionnaire addendum, and you answer every question, you might be creating future liability for the association and maybe even for the management companies that manage these condo associations. So associations really do need to be very careful as you're navigating this tricky issue. I exchanged emails yesterday with a uh, medium-sized management company CEO 
And this particular CEO told me that their company has, as a policy, they are not filling out the condominium project questionnaire addendum for condominiums just because of the uncertainty regarding knowledge about the questions that they're asking. And if you are interested in receiving a copy of the questionnaire, if you haven't seen it yet, you're welcome to contact me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com and I'd be happy to share it with you by email. But the bottom line is there's a lot of questions on that questionnaire. And the reason why we're you know, advising our clients to really think about this before before you fill it out is because do you really know without having a structural engineer look at your condominium, the true condition of the structural integrity of your condo? And if you're making representations in this form, it could come back to haunt the association's board because you're making claims on things that you may not actually have direct knowledge on. It may also affect the management companies because I mean, you don't live there. You're basically just managing the property. There could be increased liability for you. So bottom line, be careful on these forms. Think about whether or not you want to fill it out. And we stand here ready to assist condominiums. If you have any questions regarding this new questionnaire and navigating the industry changes that we're seeing in the aftermath of the Surfline collapse. So please be sure to contact us at Mulcahy Law Firm if you have any questions or if you're concerned about filling out this form for your condominium. Okay, brief update on what's going on in the legislature. Just bottom line this year, 2022 legislature is going to be a huge year for condo and HOA bills. We're coming off of two COVID legislative years, and we've seen so many HOA and condo bills, over 17 that have been introduced this year. I think we're probably going to get between five and seven of these passed this year. And I just want to give you an overview of what we're seeing so far. So these are the bills that, that pertain to HOAs and condos. We're seeing additional flags being allowed to be flown within the association. They're requesting that we associations allow first responder flags, additional military flags, and additional uniformed service flags. We've seen some green bills on artificial grass associations being required to allow artificial grass in an association. Solar and water bills, we're also seeing some that would pertain to associations. We are seeing an enormous amount of bills regarding vacation rentals, short-term rentals, and how it impacts condos and planned communities, how it impacts cities, towns, and municipalities. So there's definitely going to be something that happens on that this year, which is good because there's a lot of changes that are needed. We've seen a bill that would lower the requirement to amend your documents. We've seen political sign bills, a bill on peaceful political assembly within your association on association matters. And we've also seen a really interesting trend this year where we'll see a bill that will have a lot of bad things for HOAs and condos and then a couple good things. And I'm calling those balance bills. They're trying to make it palatable to both sides by introducing a bill that has good and bad for maybe owners that are homeowner, homeowner type bills that are in favor of more homeowner rights versus association bills that might be more related to bills that positively impact associations. So each week, the legislature is in session. Our firm continues continues to post an updated summary of the pending HOA and condo bills in the Arizona legislature. You can find this weekly updated summary in our on the homepage of our firm's webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. And we're also going to share this with you on Zoom and Facebook Live now. 
And so you will have a copy of it. And if you want to look at it anytime while the legislature is in session, just go to our homepage of our webpage at MulcahyLawFirm.com. And right in the middle of the page, there's a place you can click and you can see the most updated summary. We usually update it every Monday when the legislature is in session. And of course, when the legislature finally concludes for the year, probably, I think this one's going to go right to the end. So probably at the end of June, our firm will have our legislative update with all the bills that passed in 2022 on our website. And we'll also be talking about it throughout the summer and throughout the fall on First Fridays and also during our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy. Stay tuned. It's going to be an exciting year. Buckle up and let's see what the legislature gives us. Okay, let's go right on time. It's 9.15 and we're going to go right into our questions. It looks like this morning we have about 32 questions and we're adding them as we go. So we also have 57 people joining us here today on Zoom and a number of other people also joining us on Facebook Live. So thanks again for being here today. Okay, let's go to the first question. We have a board member asking, does the city of Scottsdale regulate healthcare and group home owners and or location? Great question. So under the Fair Housing Act, remember that group homes for the disabled and a number of other different categories are allowable, even though your association may have a business restriction saying no businesses can be operated under your CCNRs. This would be an exception that's based on state and federal law. And the city of Scottsdale has an entire process to gain approval for care homes within the city. This is a great resource, and we're going to be sharing this with you on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. So you can go to the link or you can check it out yourself at scottsdaleaz.gov. So question is, do they regulate home ownership and or location? I know that they do require that the home is registered. I do know that they have some restrictions as to how many can be within a certain square miles. So you'll want to go to the webpage and reach out to the Neighborhood Services Department at the City of Scottsdale and ask for more information on that. One thing just to remember, though, associations can't prohibit a group home. So the City of Scottsdale may have their own requirements, but if it's one of the protected group homes under Arizona law, the association cannot prohibit it. Okay, next question is also from a board member. We are a small self-managed association. What is the ballpark of costs if the association were to go into a receivership? And would there be additional costs for a management company? I'm hoping this cost may be an incentive for homeowners to get involved on the board. Okay, great question. First, I'm sorry that you're even asking this question because this is obviously smoke signal to me that things aren't going well in your association. Maybe from a business standpoint, things are going well, but from a practical standpoint, you probably can't find board members to even serve on your board. So we have seen associations go into a receivership previously. I've been practicing law representing associations for 25 years. So I have seen a handful of times where this has happened. There are pretty significant expenses. What happens is that a lawsuit is filed asking for a receiver to be appointed. The court appoints a court-appointed receiver. The costs for the receiver, are it just depends on the experience and the one that's chosen to run the affairs of your association. It could be anywhere from forty dollars or $50,000 a year, all the way up to $80,000, $85,000 a year. And that is just a hard cost that just gets passed right on to your homeowners. And the receiver just oversees things. You still may need to get a management company. One of the first things that they'll probably do is try to hire a management company to actually run the day-to-day affairs of your association. 
just as an estimate, you're looking probably at least another $100,000 a year in order to have a receiver appointed and a management company to handle the affairs of your association. So what do you do now? If you're in this situation, you want to stop this from happening because you're a small association, as you indicated. What I would recommend is I would recommend that you have our firm send a letter to your owners explaining all this. We have a letter that we've done for other associations where we just lay it all out on the line, say we can't find anybody to serve on the board. And because of this, it's a possibility that this association may need to have a receiver appointed to run the fares of the association. And we let them know how much it's going to cost. And we let them know that, hey, there's going to be a special assessment on top of your assessments to pay the receiver and to pay for a management company. So we're asking that we have a couple people step up to run the affairs of the association. And I can truthfully tell you that anytime I've ever sent that letter, we have received people who volunteer to run for the board and it has not been necessary to have a receiver. So keep that in mind as something that you might be able to do for your association so that you can avoid this situation. Okay, next question. We have a future homeowner. Purchasing a home in the HOA in March received a resale disclosure statement from the HOA management company stating this subject property has no known violations but it doesn't relieve seller to disclose any improvements that were not approved from the association taking action against buyer for violations at the time of the purchase. Management company took over the HOA in October 2021. So when I asked for copies of requests for architectural approvals on this property, they said they didn't receive any documents from the previous management company. Seller doesn't have copies of approvals. What can I do? Don't, I can tell that this person here is got is a think ahead person because you're worrying that hey, am I purchasing something that may not have approvals? And I think probably the best way to handle this, I know it's a tight housing market right now, so you don't really want to do anything that's going to screw up this deal because it's hard to buy houses right now in Arizona. And so I guess you have to just weigh this. So the association has provided you information saying that they're not aware of any known violations. There's nothing in the file that indicates that, but honestly, there's nothing in the file, period. So I would, if I were you as a part of your closing, I would request that the seller indemnify you. If there's any problems in the future, that would be one way to handle it. Or you could ask that the seller communicate with the association and try to get a letter saying that everything is in compliance after a visual inspection. I don't know if the association will even do that, but probably the safest thing for you to do is to get an indemnification agreement saying that the seller will indemnify you in the event that there's any problems regarding the violations on the property that exist at the time of the close of escrow. Okay, next question is from a board member. We live in Sun City, which is an age-restricted community. So I need to know if we can amend our CCNRs to create a minimum age requirement beyond having one owner be at least 55 years of age. We would like to require a minimum age of 40 for any other residents within a household, knowing that we would have to grandfather anyone under the age of 40 currently living in any of our units. So this is kind of a hard question for me to answer without seeing the restrictions for Sun City or whatever the overlay is for Sun City for your age-restricted community. But generally speaking, yes, you can amend your CCNRs to include a provision like this. 
if you'd like our assistance, please give us a call or, or send me your documents and we can help you further evaluate this. But yes, we do see minimum age requirements. Yes, grandfathering is a good idea. So I think you're on the right track. Question five, is painting considered a maintenance or a capital improvement? This is like a trick question. It could be considered both, frankly. What I would do is go back and look at your reserve study if you have one for your association. And there's different ways to look at this. So there's painting, let's say you're painting walls or something. And then there's painting when you're redoing a capital improvement project. So you want to look at how it's categorized in your reserve study and then go from there. Like I know I, I serve on my board right now for the association that I live in. And there are certain painting expenses that are maintenance that are come out of the general association budget, not the capital budget. And then there are other painting expenditures that come out of the reserve account. So you want to have your reserve company take a closer look at that and document specifically what is capital replacement item painting and what is just general maintenance painting. Okay, next question. Our HOA is self-managed. The board is discussing providing laptops and software for board members so that they are not using their personal computers for HOA business. The justification for this is that their computer hard drive could be confiscated if there is an issue and an investigation is required. On the other hand, they say that there is no money to purchase a fidelity bond and also not needed as there is no cash on hand. In your opinion, which presents the greatest exposure? No fidelity bond covering our reserve account or personal computers being confiscated? Okay, a couple things. The fidelity bond is usually an add-on to your director's and officer's insurance. The typical amount that we see is about $50,000. And so there's really no reason why you shouldn't have a fidelity bond, at least in a minimal amount. First glance, I'm going to just mention that I feel that there's no reason why you shouldn't have a fidelity bond for your association. And it doesn't matter to me that you don't have petty cash on hand. A fidelity bond will protect the association in the event that the management company or somebody that has direct control over the financials has access to your association's funds. So what's the greatest exposure? No fidelity bond for sure, in my opinion. Now, let's talk a little bit about personal computers. We recommend that association board members have a separate email for association business and that they keep everything segregated in that special email. Really, all the books and records of the association should be with the association's management company or in your case, you're self-managed. So maybe what you need to have is a repository, a place, a box with all the documents that the owner files or maybe stored in the cloud if you're technologically advanced. I really doubt that your personal computers would be confiscated, but you need to set up where your documents are for your association. It shouldn't all be stored on a person's personal computer. It should be either stored in boxes and they're in possession of somebody or it's stored on the cloud and people have access to it via the cloud. And again, having a separate email for each board member where the email for association business is there should be no reason ever to have personal computer confiscated. And I can tell you that in 25 years experience, I've never seen a personal computer be confiscated, even if the association is self-managed. Okay, next question. Question number seven, is there a requirement for ARC meetings to be announced? Open to HOA members and with votes of the committee published in minutes or otherwise, 
Under what circumstances may a meeting be closed? Okay, we have two great cheat sheets that I'd like to share with you right now. One's on architectural review committees. The other one is on associations committee basics. Okay, here's the bottom line. A couple important things about the architectural committee. So if you have an architectural committee that is meeting on a regular basis, meaning like the architectural committee always meets the first Monday of the month at 8 a.m. to review applications. If you have a regularly scheduled architectural committee meeting, it has to be an open meeting under the Arizona law. And it has to comply with the Arizona open meeting law that applies to planned communities and condominiums. So remember, if you have regularly scheduled meetings of your architectural committee, it has to be an open meeting. If it's not a regularly scheduled meeting, which I would say 90% of the associations we work with in Arizona, we have over a thousand clients, then you don't have to make this an open meeting. So best practices is that your architectural committee, when you do meet, that you have minutes. If you want to make it an open meeting, even though it's not a regularly scheduled meeting, you certainly have the right to do that, but you're not required to do that. But you should have minutes. If you're making decisions by email, please be very careful on that. It's best for the architectural committee to get together on a Zoom call and have minutes and make a decision that way versus by email. If you do make a decision by email, just make sure that there are minutes that are decided on what was decided. And then those decisions should be reaffirmed at a architectural meeting in the future. But best case scenario, in my opinion, best practices is just have hop on a Zoom meeting, review the applications quickly and move forward. Under what circumstances may an architectural committee meeting be closed, like executive session? We really don't see that. The executive session only applies to regular board meetings where you can go into executive session to discuss topics like advice from your attorney, delinquencies, violations, issues maybe with a vendor on their performance. So it's, it would be very unusual for an architectural review committee to have an executive session. Okay, next question. Let's see. Our 30-year-old bylaws do not prohibit short-term rentals, yet the rentals are ruining the quality of life for those near them. What can we do? Heavy fines for complaints? Really great question. So we have two cheat sheets that are really helpful for you on this. The first one is on rental restrictions, or excuse me, on rental properties, dealing with rental properties. I think that would be a helpful cheat sheet for you to look at. And we're going to be sharing that with you shortly. And then also amending association documents and implementing rental restrictions is also a really useful tool for you. Okay, bottom line, if you have short-term rentals that are a problem, first, it depends which city do you live in. I think I know where your association is based upon name of the association. I think you're probably in Phoenix proper. Reach out to the city of Phoenix and see if they have any restrictions on short-term rentals. I know that a number of cities are now having ordinances passed that talk about if there are wild parties, making complaints to the police, et cetera. And there are some procedures in place that the cities and towns and municipalities are implementing that might be helpful to your association if there's a problem. And that's step number one. Step number two, think about amending your CCNRs to limit rental restrictions that would be short-term rentals. So you might be able to implement a minimum rental period of 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Fine the owner for the behavior of the tenant. So I've had a number of cases here the past two weeks where 
we are reaching out to the owner of the property regarding their short-term rental tenant and notifying the owner of all the problems and levying fines. Just remember that if you are going to levy a fine, you have to give notice and an opportunity to be heard before you levy the fine. And really fast track this to your attorney or to our law firm to help you. We have been very successful in managing difficult rental properties. And the best advice I can give you is have a law firm reach out to the landlord owner, let them know that we're going to fine you. We're potentially going to file a lawsuit against you if this behavior doesn't stop and then follow through on it. Because the thing that speaks loudly to landlord owners is money. And if they recognize that this tenant is going to cost me money and fines and it's going to cost me money in attorney's fees if we have to file a lawsuit, they are going to evict that tenant. One other thing, if you have a bad tenant and possibly there's criminal activity going on the property, the landlord is responsible for not abating a criminal nuisance. So you can also let the landlord know that, hey, not only are you potentially subject to all these civil penalties and civil remedies, such as fines and lawsuit, and then having to pay the attorney's fees when you lose in the lawsuit, there also may be criminal penalties against you for failing to abate any criminal activity, abate meaning stop any criminal activity by your tenant. And that's really pretty serious. And we have seen, interestingly, the Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office prosecute some landlords for allowing criminal activity to exist at a rental property, which is really interesting. Keep all those things in mind and make sure that you take a look at our two cheat sheets on handling rental properties and also on how to amend your documents to implement a short-term rental restriction. Okay, next question. Are a private citizen or member of our community publishes a newsletter using the association's name and logo, which makes it appear to be from the association? It is an attempt to mislead the community with one's personal opinion. Is this legal and how does the association stop this behavior? I don't know if this is something that's new in the pandemic. I guess I've been doing this a long time. I know I've seen this in the past, but most recently I've seen a tidal wave of this problem happening in associations. Literally just this week, I've had this question three times. So what is the best way to handle disgruntled group of owners who are creating publications, whether I've seen the Facebook page, I've seen posts on Nextdoor, I've seen now you've got a newsletter. What's the best way to handle owners that are doing this? Can we stop them from their free speech? So first thing on your example, they shouldn't be using, they shouldn't be characterizing themselves as a board member or speaking on behalf of the association. So if they're doing that, it's appropriate for the association's attorney to send them a letter telling them to cease and desist. They also shouldn't be using your logo if that's protected under copyright or trademark laws. They shouldn't be doing that. That's from a legal side. But then from a practical side, how do we handle this when we've got these people that are just constantly out there promoting misinformation? And I had a lengthy call with a board member on this yesterday. So the best way to counter misinformation in an association is to be constantly communicating with the association members regarding the truth, the reality, and not getting super negative about this other group, but acknowledging their presence. 
acknowledging that they like to have chaos and they're trying to tear apart the association and how much money they're costing the association in terms of time, money, effort. Frequently, publications like this and groups like this that are so destructive, they end up having people, you know, there's a retention problem. We can't keep board members. We can't keep the managers. We can't keep the attorney. And it ends up just being a really big negative for the association. So associations that are in this position, if they're stating that they are representing the association or that they're a board member using your logo, you have a legal right to contact them and tell them to stop. But they're not going to stop. They're just going to stop using that information. They're going to call some other name like the disgruntled group of ABC HOA or Citizens for the Truth of ABC HOA or whatever they come up with. And trust me, this is not novel thing. This happens frequently, like I said. So be the truth teller. Constantly be communicating with your owners regarding what's going on. The associations that communicate the most have the fewest problems. So it's going to take a little while to build trust with your owners, especially if this group is really destructive. But over time, people don't want all the drama. And eventually, they're just going to stop listening to the naysayers. The association is really providing valuable, timely and true information regarding things that are going on in your association. I really recommend that you, you know, increase the level of communication and recognize, I said this to the board member that I talked to yesterday, being on the board is not a fun job. Okay. We realize that if we're on the board and this is just an add-on that makes the job miserable. And if you can have a thick skin and recognize that the time that you put in communicating to your owners will make this problem go away, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And that is the best strategy to handle this. Okay. Next question. Explain what a special meeting of the board is, under what circumstances one could be called and correct notification to owners. Our bylaws state notice to members for a special meeting of the board is as required by law. The previous board has replaced the regular meeting with special meetings using 48 hours notice required, nor board meetings, then limits discussions to topics they choose, which are typical board agendas and not emergencies. Okay, so a special meeting of the board. So this is not a special meeting of the membership. This is just a special meeting of the board. You just need to give 48 hours notice to your membership and you should give an agenda as to what topics the board is going to be discussing. It is appropriate that the discussion is limited to a few subjects because it's a special meeting. It's not a full-blown board meeting. Owners should be allowed to participate just like they would in an open board meeting, a regular open board meeting, before the board takes formal action on an item. And so we have a great cheat sheet on Arizona's open meeting law, which we shared with you, or you can find it on our website at lkhelawfirm.com. I encourage you to look at that. Okay, next question. Sun City West wants all associations to change their CCNRs. In our existing CCNRs, it says that monthly assessments must be paid proportionally. Also, our bylaws say the same thing. We've never gone by proportionally, but have charged assessments. Can we legally change the wording to equal assessment? Or do we need to hire a professional to survey each property to go proportional? We are 41 homes with no common areas. The association is just responsible to keep the landscape up in the front yards. 
Okay, so great question. It sounds like your CCNRs for your association require you to levy assessments based upon the square footage of the units. But you haven't been doing that. You have just been charging a flat assessment to each owner. So you do have a problem there. And it's a problem that you need to fix. And why? Because you have some owners who are likely underpaying and some owners who are likely overpaying because your documents require proportional assessment payments based upon on how large the units are. So we have seen this problem with other associations in the past. And usually what prompts them to make a change is an owner suing them, saying you're not doing this correctly. And so one thing that we would recommend is that you should fix this. You definitely need to look into doing an amendment to your CCNRs to make how you're levying assessments consistent with what your documents state. So I encourage you to reach out to our firm and we can give you some assistance on how to handle that. And the sooner the better, because this is just an ongoing problem that could have a lot of liability for your association. Okay, next question. Our January On January 1st, our assessment dues increased from $140 to $148. Several owners using bill pay have not adjusted to the new amount, so are currently $16 short, soon to be $24. Friendly reminders so far have not produced any responses. Not really late, but not paid up either. Advice. Okay, I would, I don't know how many owners you have that are in the situation. And actually, you're a client of our firm. So great to see you here today. I think I would pick up the phone and contact the owners and that are in this situation. And I would, you know, have if you're a management company, have them do that or send a, a more firm letter saying, listen, the assessment increased, you haven't paid the increase. If you don't bring up to speed the $16 per month, we're going to have to lien your property for this difference. And hopefully that will get them to pay the correct amount going forward. Another thing that you can do is, I don't know how your bill pay works, but apparently they're just paying the same amount. Maybe they just have it on auto debit. Maybe you don't accept it if it's not the right amount. I don't know. You'll have to figure out what works best for your association. But just, I think, communicating with them that there's going to be a lien placed on their property if they don't pay the difference in the increase, I think is the most effective way to handle it. If they continue to not do it, then turn it over to your association's legal counsel and we'll start contacting them for you. Next question, number 13, just to give you an idea of where we are. And we have about, wow, we're getting up there. We've got 40 questions. So great turnout today. A violation letter was issued to an owner and was fined for leaving appliances by the trash bin. The association was charged for the removal of the appliance. The owner appealed the board's decision and protested the fine. That's ridiculous because I created an amount is approximately $170. It's been over six months and the owner refuses to pay the fine. Do we have to go to small claims judgment or can we deduct the fine amount from HOA monthly dues? So you're not going to like this answer, but you really do have to go to small claims and get a judgment. You don't have a legal right to deduct the fine from the HOA monthly dues. Next question from a board member. We are in the middle of a housing action regarding developer defects. We got into we got info marketed attorney client only, and one board member gives this information to the developer through one of his friends who has started a rebel group to demean the board and ask endless questions, both in email and at meetings. We don't like we can prove it's him and we didn't catch him doing it. 
let's see, we don't feel like we can prove it is him and we don't catch him doing it, but there is little doubt. Is there anything we can do short of asking the attorney to leave him off current emails? Okay, so you're in the middle of a lawsuit, construction defect lawsuit, and you've got potentially somebody leaking information to the developer. That is a huge problem. I'm sure that your construction defect attorney make that person aware of that immediately. And I do think that information needs to be limited to the board. Maybe what you need to do is have one person on the board, probably the president, who is getting information, whether it's confidential information, whatever, and then sifting through it and then providing a watered-down version to the rest of the board. I do think you should call this person out on it. I would definitely ask this person, put the pressure on them, the heat, and say, this information was leaked. We want to know if you've provided this information to anybody else and see what the response is. Now's a great time for your board to adopt a code of conduct. We have a great cheat sheet on the code of conduct for board members. And part of that code of conduct would be for all board members to agree to a duty of confidentiality. You can find that code of conduct cheat sheet on our firm's website at mulcahylawfirm.com. So just keep that in mind. The exact language you could use, just lift it right from our cheat sheet. But this is a problem. So I think the bottom line is confront the board member that you think is leaking information. Remind everybody of their obligations to keep things confidential by adopting a code of conduct with the duty of confidentiality in there. And then third, considering limiting information regarding the um, strategy, et cetera, of the case to one solid person on the board, typically the president, and then just water it down for the rest of the board. Okay, next question. I'm puzzled about the role of the HOA dispute process with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. Is an HOA or homeowner required to take a complaint through the HOA dispute process in the Arizona Department of Real Estate. So no, there is no requirement to to do that. It's optional. It's only for HOAs, condos, and their respective owners to resolve disputes. It's the only place where you can go to the state agency to resolve disputes. You also have the right to go to Superior Court. It's your choice or justice court, it's your choice. There are pros and cons on going to the ADRE to have disputes heard. It's quick. The administrative law judges, in my experience, are very competent. But there also are some negatives in that you attorney's fees aren't recoverable, etc. The bottom line for your question is, are you required to do this as part of the way to get to litigation? No, it's optional. I would encourage you to check out their website. Just type in like Arizona Department of Real Estate and HOA or condo disputes and it'll pop right up and it can answer lots of questions about how that dispute process works. Okay, question 16. We have one property that was vacated over three years ago. The property is now owned by HUD. We have made many attempts to contact HUD, no response. The property is in bad shape signs of water damage and mold. In your experience, is there a way that we can get the city of Phoenix or Maricopa County involved? And would they be more successful in penetrating HUD than we have been to date? So great question. HUD is a problem. Okay, I've been doing this 25 years. There has never been a HUD property that is owned in an association that we haven't seen some sort of issue, whether it's the property not being maintained or them not paying dues assessments. 
And the best advice that I can give you would be, you can, of course, reach out to the city of Phoenix and the county and see if they'll do anything. If there's an ordinance violation, they'll become involved. But honestly, I'm not sure that HUD will do anything about it. If their HUD's not paying assessments, lien the property and foreclose. Um, That's the only thing that will get their attention. If the property is not being maintained, consider doing a fine against the owner or consider having filing a lawsuit to compel them to comply. These are expensive things and sometimes it's not worth it to go that route depending on how long HUD's owned it, but it looks like they've owned it for a while. It's been three years. So the bottom line is when you're dealing with HUD, you got to go legal. Make sure you loop in the city and the county and see if they'll be able to do anything. But the only way to get the ear of HUD is to file a lawsuit, fine, foreclose. Okay, next question. Can you walk us through the process for an association board to attempt to collect delinquent HOA dues, specifically notice required under Arizona law and what's stated in the CCNRs? So we have a really good cheat sheet that I'd like to share with you. Go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. It's called Secrets for Collection of Delinquent Assessments. And what I would recommend is I don't have your CCNRs, so I don't know what your CCNRs state, but the best advice I can give you is first, the association's board should send a friendly reminder letter to the owner. Then you need to ramp it up with a more formal violation letter. Some associations have their management company lien the property. Some have our law firm lien the property. Under Arizona law, you have to give 30 days notice to the owner before you turn it over to the association's attorney. So keep that in your back pocket, although that could change because there's a bill pending in the legislature that would eliminate that. And then the attorney, if it's our firm, we do a credit evaluation of the owner to determine what's the best way to get the money. So either we can get a justice court judgment against the owner and garnish their wages, their bank account, or rent if they're renting a property anywhere in Arizona, we can collect the rent to pay the debt. Or we foreclose. And under Arizona law, we can't foreclose on an owner unless the owner is delinquent in the payment of assessments for 12 months or owes $1,200 in assessments only. So check out our cheat sheet on this. It's great information. It's at mulcahylawfirm.com and it's called Secrets to Collecting Delinquent Assessments. Okay, next question. Our HOA made some amendments to our CCNRs and they were approved by the membership. What happens if the amendments aren't submitted to Maricopa County to be registered by a certain time? So under Arizona law, you have 30 days after the amendment passes to record the amendment. So what happens if they miss that 30-day window? I suppose to get it recorded as soon as possible would be the best advice I would give you. And then also recognize that if you don't record it within the 30 days, it's possible it could be challenged and overturned as not being valid. Question number 19 from a board member. We have some rules as suggested by a parking monitoring company. And as we currently don't have any enforceable rules, we are already facing opposition from some owners and tenants. Can we deny parking privileges to residents who use their garages for storage and cannot park a car there? The CCNRs do not address garages being used for storage. Ah, parking is always an issue in many associations. It's like parking, rental restrictions. These are all really common problems that we see. So first things first, look at your CCNRs. What does it say about parking? Where can people park? Is there, can they park in their driveways? 
what is on-street parking? Is it allowed? Is it only during daytime hours? Is it only for guests? It's hard for me to give you advice without knowing what your use restrictions in your CCNRs are. Also, it's hard for me to give you advice because I don't know how broad your rulemaking authority is in your bylaws and your CCNRs. And I don't know if what your parking company, your parking market monitoring company is suggesting, I don't know if that's legit under the the authority that you have under your CCNRs and your bylaws. Hard for me to answer this question. I guess what I would recommend is loop your attorney in here and come up with a plan that is going to be enforceable under your documents. Just using the rules that are suggested by the parking monitoring company so that it makes it easier for them to tow or put stickers on cars or whatever. We want to work with them as a partner, but you also need to do it the legal way. So I would encourage you to get your legal counsel involved to help you. Okay, next question. If a board member has listed their home for sale, must they resign from the board and or recuse themselves from participating in big decisions that will have long-term implications for the community? And if it's not legally required, is it ethically recommended? So great question. You are a board member until you are no longer a board member, until you resign or until you sell your home and you cease being a board member. So you have the right to make decisions as a board member for as long as you're on the board and owner in the community and until you would resign. So a couple of thoughts here. Sorry about that. We just had a little technical difficulty. A couple of thoughts here would be that is it ethically required or recommended? I really don't think it is. As Remember, when you're serving on your board, you have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the corporation. And just because you have your house for sale or it's an escrow, you should still be making decisions that are in the best in interest of the community and thinking about long-term implications for the community as well. So you should never be putting your personal interests ahead of that. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, next question. Question 21. We have a community clubhouse. Do we have to have a phone available? We asked the city, however, they couldn't answer that question. So I'm not available. I'm not aware of anything that requires you to have a like a house phone in a clubhouse. I honestly don't know the rules if the clubhouse has a pool. I know my association where we live, we do have a phone at the pool in the event of emergencies, but I don't know specifically the answer on that. You may want to check with your city if the pool is attached to the clubhouse as to whether or not that's a requirement, but I'm not aware of any requirement to have it in the clubhouse. Next question, 22. 22. Our board is currently a four-member board. Our CCNRs and our bylaws do not restrict a chairperson from participating in voting. Most of the time, the board is in agreement on decisions, so the chair doesn't need to vote. We now have a situation where the board members are having a split vote on a decision being made. Two yes and two vote no, including the chairperson's vote. We have tried negotiating, but it has not changed anybody's mind. When there is a split vote decision, two to two, how does a final decision get made? In other words, does the chair make the final decision? So in this situation, nothing happens. If you've got a a stalemate, two to two, it's a stalemate. So if you're voting to hire a new management company and it's two to two, guess what? You're not hiring a new management company. If you're making a vote to amend the CCNRs and it's two to two, nothing happens. So the only way you get out of that is by either somebody changing their vote or coming up with a new plan where you can get three 
out of the four people to vote yes. One thing on, on board members and board presidents voting, in my experience, the board president always votes, just so you know, unless the CCNRs have that requirement in it, they can't. Question 23, board member, the association has a side street that leads up to the clubhouse. This road is blocked off the street traffic and the road is often used as a place for the kids to ride their bikes. There are parking spots designated for the clubhouse. The street is also opened if and when somebody rents out the clubhouse so they can have access to those parking spots. There have been several requests to open the street. Is it legal for the association to keep this blocked off for the most part? Okay, so let's see. There's a side street. It's been blocked off. Parking spots there for the clubhouse. It's opened up if there's a rental and you need access to the parking spots. Really, it's just a board decision. So majority decision, whatever the board wants to do. Here, it's majority rules. Now, if there's some sort of a legal implication on this, like the street is dangerous or something, I don't know. I can't really foresee anything. But from my perspective, it's a board decision whether to block or unblock it. It looks like it's been unblocked before because for when the clubhouse is rented, it's allowed to be unblocked. So if a lot of the kids are riding their bikes there, we want to think about it. Hey, if we unblock this, there's going to be potentially an accident. I don't know if that's something that could happen. Just taking into consideration the totality of the circumstances, the board should just try to make the best decision here. Question 24. A new board member asked about a fidelity bond. I did not see that language in the insurance packet. Do HOAs usually have that protection? So we briefly touched on that a minute ago. We have a great cheat sheet on our webpage under the cheat sheets tab called insurance. I would recommend you look at it's at mulcahylawfirm.com. So do HOAs usually have fidelity bond protection? Yes. Usually it's together on the policy with the DNO insurance. And usually there's like a, a minimal amount of like 50 or $100,000 that's in conjunction with the DNO policy, the directors and officers policy or the errors and emissions policy. So yes, they usually have it. And yes, it's usually coupled with the DNO insurance. Question 25, we're struggling to find a monthly meeting format that balances the desire for participation by the homeowners with the need to get through the meeting efficiently. I know you're a member of your board. Yes, I am. Could you go over a typical meeting for your association, focusing on things like the components of your meeting, when homeowners can contribute, and what, if any, materials you make available at your meeting? For example, the financial statements and previous minutes that will be reviewed. Okay, great question. This isn't just for my board, but this is just general practice for most boards. If you're having trouble balancing owners wanting to participate with getting your work done, I really encourage you to look at our cheat sheet called board meetings because we give you a really good tip on how to have a board meeting in an hour and still be in compliance with Arizona law. That would be my first tip here. Due to the time constraints of today, I can't go through everything, but I'm going to give you some quick tips. So number one, at the beginning of your meeting, have a 10 or 15 minute, what we call just like a owner's forum or every association calls it something different where the owners can come in and they can have one minute to state their concern. And basically they just say their name, their ladder address, property address, and then they're able to talk for one minute. And then the board after 10 or 15 minutes of that goes into the board meeting and they close off discussion from the owners, except before the board is taking formal action, meaning voting on something. If an owner wants to contribute, 
maybe you give the owner 30 seconds to contribute. That's typically the best way to balance the meetings. On our board meeting cheat sheet, we suggest that you place time limitations for each agenda item. So for example, the meeting starts at our meetings start at 2.30 in the afternoon. So from 2.30 to 2.40, we have a homeowner forum or owner comment period or whatever. And then at 2.40, we start our meeting. From 2.40 to 2.45, 2.50, we approve last month's meeting minutes. We do not provide a copy of last month's meeting minutes unless people are asking for it. Usually they aren't. Then we go right into the agenda and we have the president's report, the treasurer's report, manager's report, and we do new business, old business, and then we conclude the meeting. And basically when we hit each component of the meeting, whether it's the manager's report, we put on there five minutes, president's report, five minutes, and we do it all with the time. So 240 to 250 or 240 to 245, president's report, 245 to 250, treasurer's report. And we map it out. So it's a one hour meeting. And that is the way to have a one hour meeting. And so I hope that will help you. What materials do we make available at the meeting? We always have an agenda because we're required to do that under Arizona law. We usually give notice by posting the agenda too. So people know what we're going to be talking about. And unless the homeowners are asking for it, we're not providing the financials and we're not providing last month's meeting minutes. Okay, now next question is from a manager. So great to see you here today. Our CCNRs do not depict or include maintenance items that are on the final plat, which has precedence. So I guess the question that I would have is, okay, we have a great blog on what to do when there's an inconsistency in the governing documents. And actually the plat does take precedence over the CCNRs. It's unusual though that the plat would be talking about maintenance items. So I probably would have your legal counsel take a look at that and give you a formal opinion. Usually the plat map was laying out the lots and the units and the common areas and talking about easements. And they're not usually saying the maintenance items, the fences or the walls are being maintained a certain way, but I'd have to look at the issue to give you a better answer. But the priority is the plat over the CCNRs. Question 27, our budget is over a million dollars. At our board meeting, we are discussing matters that cost hundreds of dollars. Should we have a dollar amount that does not need to go to the board? These include supplies, education, increasing a general ledger item. It seems that it should be taken care of outside of a board meeting. So I here's one way to handle this. So it sounds like you have a large budget and you might be getting bogged down in the weeds on little things like $50 expenditures or whatever. So the way for your board to handle this would be to, you know, come up with a motion whereby, you know, the manager or the board members are allowed to spend a certain amount of money without getting board approval at a formal board meeting. So you could say any regularly reoccurring bills, we automatically pay those without having to discuss that at a board meeting. Any bill that's less than $5,000, we can go ahead and pay those bills without discussion at a board meeting. It just gets tricky because like supplies, that should be a no-brainer. That should just be done. Education, it just depends. If somebody's going to a seminar that's gonna cost thousands of dollars, that probably should be approved by the board. You're going to have to look at it on a case-by-case basis, but I agree. When you have a large association with a large budget, you don't want to be getting stuck in talking about $25 and $50 things. You talk about the larger items, and then you have a motion that protects whoever's making the smaller decisions from any legal challenges by giving them the authority. 
Okay, next question. Uh, question number 28. I'm just going to give you a little read as to how many questions we have. Wow, we have 45. It's a great turnout today. 63 people with us on Zoom and countless others on Facebook Live. So great that we have such a good turnout today. So question 28, is it advisable or recommended that the HOA hire and pay unlicensed and uninsured contractors that work on HOA property? It is not advisable and it is not recommended to hire unlicensed, unbonded, and uninsured condominium or contractors to work on an HOA or condo property. Best practices is to hire licensed, bonded, and insured vendors. We did a great blog last week. I encourage you to take a look at it. It's on our website. And we also just shared it with you here. Pennywise, but pound foolish. And it directly addresses this specific topic. Question 29 on the board. We have a board member sending almost daily emails to the board that seldom contain executive session matter related information. Most of this person's emails contain somewhat biased, mean-spirited comments about homeowners and board members. They have been cautioned in the past and we have shown them the link to your Facebook page to learn how to avoid problems with misusing emails. My question is, based on ARS 33-1804, can we share their emails with the community? Okay, so I think I would be really careful about doing that because that's going to subject the association to liability because you said that they're unprofessional nature emails. So don't be sharing those with the community. Number two, you got to get this board member under control because this is a problem. And having a board member like this is it's horrible. It's horrible for the other board members to be getting that many emails. Nobody wants to be dealing with that on a volunteer board every day, all that negativity and also possible open meeting violations. So I think we had this situation actually on my board many years ago. And the way that we handled it is the rest of the board said to the one board member, do not send us emails anymore. We don't want these emails. You're they're inappropriate, they're unprofessional, and they're a potential violation of the open meeting law. Please stop. And if the person didn't stop, then they blocked them, frankly. So this is a problem. I think your association needs to talk with this board member and make them aware that this is a liability. This is potential open meeting violation, and this board member needs to stop. If the board member doesn't stop, then the board just needs to stop accepting emails from this person. Okay, what can be done about board and property management company that ignores the community bylaws, moves the deadline for board applications two weeks earlier than the bylaws dictate, and the head of the nominating committee which approves applications is himself running as a candidate? Possible unethical behavior. Okay, so this is can be a problem. Uh, we do sometimes see things like this happening. So what I would do, it sounds like you're on the board. So you have, based upon the information you provided to me, you have the direct ear of the board. And so I think you need to document in writing and in meeting minutes that you are concerned regarding these violations and the possible conflict of interest. And if they continue forward, you've protected yourself by documenting it. It's not right that they're handling things this way. And it's okay for you to say that I said that. And just so you know, this video is on our website. It will be posted on our website within a couple of business days. And also it's automatically on our Facebook Live page after the seminar. So you could just scroll right to this point in the video and show it to the rest of the board. 
that you need to be following what your bylaws say. And I think it's a conflict of interest for somebody to nominate themselves if they're the chair of the nominating committee. They should have recused themselves from the nominating committee and have independent nominating committee members. Next question from a board member. I have a question for you regarding HOA minutes. If a unit owner in a meeting asks for something to be completed and a board member agrees to complete this task, can this be added to the minutes? It can be if you want it to be, but really it's not proper. The meeting minutes are the official record of what was decided by the board at the meeting. If you look at our board meetings cheat sheet, we have a great summary of how to take perfectly proper meeting minutes on the second page, the backside of that cheat sheet. Again, meeting minutes should be concise, one page, and it's not everything that was said. Maybe you're asking this question because things aren't getting done. Maybe a board member is agreeing to do the task and they're not actually doing it. It's a problem. As a board member yourself, you can ask that this information be included in the minutes. And as a board, they can decide whether or not this information is included. Next question, 32. What can be done to provide assistance to homeowners? Can anything be placed in the CCNR's rules or bylaws to address this owner-tenant disruptive behavior? Fines, legal letters, our current management company says call the police and offers little assistance to neighboring homeowners. I am a current homeowner of an association and I'm running for a board. Okay, well, good luck to you as you run for the board. I would recommend that you look at our cheat sheet on rental properties. We have great information on how to handle disputes with owners that have tenants and the different legal remedies that we have. I've talked a little bit about this already today, about finding the owner, considering pursuing legal action against the owner if there's problems with the tenants, contacting your city, town, or municipality to see if they have any ordinances that may help you. But check out the cheat sheet. I think it'll be helpful to you. And I wish you the best of luck as you serve on the board. Hopefully you'll be elected too. Okay, next question. We're on question number 33, and we have 45 questions total. Okay, what we have architectural control disclosure form and a judgment question, felony and judgment question. Does the president, VP, and treasurer sign this form, or should the secretary and members at large also sign? This seems like a very, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. It doesn't seem to make sense. So, Apparently, you have an architectural form, some sort of a form that you're putting out. I don't know if it's at like the close of escrow or if this is like an approval. I Honestly, I can't really comment on this unless I hear more about what the form's about. Generally speaking, if you're doing a disclosure form as per the sale of a property, typically either the manager or the management company, if you have one, or an officer of the board would be able to sign that. I don't know what you mean by a felony or judgment question. That seems very unusual. That's not something that we would ever see in a form that, you know, associations disclosing. Okay, next question. If an owner gets a FHA reasonable accommodation for hardwood flooring, can he rent his unit out while he is not there? Good question. So apparently under the Fair Housing Act, this owner asked for a reasonable accommodation due to some sort of protected class there under the Fair Housing Act. And now this person's renting out the unit and I'm guessing that this is a condo and hardwood flooring is potentially a noise issue. 
What you may want to do is you may want to mention this to the owner and indicate that maybe we need to have rugs to limit the noise if there is going to be noise and that that reasonable accommodation only applied to his request to live there. You can't make him change it back, of course, but there need to be modifications so that there is no nuisance for any neighbor that might be hearing excess noise due to the hardwood flooring. Next question, 35. Our association is self-managed and does not have a reserve established. We've just had a reserve study done. We will need 500000 over the next 10 years. Do we tell potential buyers that the reserve account dues is being considered? We are looking at 120 month a month in addition to our normal operating budget costs or dues. Does the new reserve fee need to get a vote of the membership? Okay, all great questions. Let's break it down. So do we need to tell potential buyers that we're considering having an assessment to fund our reserve? No. You are under no legal obligation to tell a buyer until that actual assessment has been levied. Obviously, the seller, if they're hearing about it through meeting minutes, they may have an obligation to disclose it, but it's not a reality until it actually gets passed for the association. We have to disclose it as a disclosure statement. But the seller, if they're aware of it, it may be something that they may need to notify the buyer of if they're selling their property. Okay, so you're looking at doing an add-on to your regular assessment rate. Do we need to get a vote of the membership? I don't have your CCNR, so I don't know if this is going to be something for a special assessment or if this is just going to be an increase in your regular assessment. Typically, an increase this large will require a vote of the membership, but you have to look at your CCNRs to determine that. You're welcome to reach out to me and have me help you with this process. Um, but my short answer would be it likely does require a vote. Okay, what has precedence is the next question. The final plat or the CCNRs? Under the hierarchy, the plat has final precedence. Next question, 37. The board has a vacancy to be filled for the remainder of the resigning board members' terms. Since our annual meeting is soon, we decided to place the position on the ballot as a one-year term. Management company says it needs to be a three-year term, which will throw the director rotation off. Okay, there must be something like in the universe right now because I'm getting this question all the time. This week has been probably two or three things in my inbox right now where they're really difficult and complicated problems regarding the term of members. It's really hard for me to answer this without looking at your bylaws and without looking at the term of what the director's term is, what your bylaws say, because sometimes when you have a board member that resigns, the board member that you appoint is only appointed until the next term. Or and in this case, you didn't appoint anybody, but then the seat that's been vacated by the resigning director, they have a specific term that's assigned to that seat and we can't get that term out of whack. I don't know if the management company is saying it has to be a three-year term. That doesn't sound right based upon how these things normally work. Normally, the term, you know, even though the person resigned, that term stays the same. We just fill in another body to take it over. And that body will be whoever's elected at the annual meeting. And remember, though, that the candidates with the highest votes typically get the longer term. So be really careful on that. Okay, next question. 
from the president of an association. What is the address to review your cheat sheets for rental properties so we can copy and use them? We're looking at clarifying our CCNRs by using just a new template made available by our master association, or I'm not exactly sure you use the name, but I don't want to use it in this presentation for amending and restating our declaration of covenants and conditions and restrictions for our HOA. We have 34 units. Okay, so what is the address to review our cheat sheets on rental properties? All you have to do is go to our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. All of our cheat sheets are listed on the cheat sheets tab. All you got to do is go into the search engine for our webpage on the cheat sheets tab and type in rental properties. And, you know, that information is there. It looks like you're looking to amend your CCNRs. I'm a little bit concerned about using a template made by somebody that's not a law firm. So be really careful on that. Every association should have their legal counsel assisting them as they are amending their CCNRs and just adopting a form template that may not even apply or have the same amenities that your association has is not a good idea. Of course, you can look at that and bring that to the table as something to discuss with your attorney. And I'm fully open to doing that, but just adopting a form template is not a good idea. Okay, next question. Question number 39. It looks like we have 46 questions total. So we're rounding the corner here this morning. Is it not normal to pay someone to be on the architectural review board? Just found out we are paying someone who does not live in our HOA to be in this position and is in a relationship with the HOA manager. Okay, this does not sound legit. I'll be the first person to say that. I do know that like our association that I live in, we pay to have an architect review the plans when they come in. So that is something that we do and I'm okay with you doing because total reconstruction plans sometimes do need to have an expert take a look at it to find out if it's meeting all the requirements of your documents. But having a non-board member or non-owner, excuse me, serve on your architectural committee, you know, and that person isn't like an architect or something, it does seem odd. Even having the architect serve on the architectural committee seems odd. Architect could be hired to review the plans and give their input, but the whole thing sounds fishy to me and I don't like it. So I would definitely start asking some additional questions. Okay, next question from a client of ours. Good to see you here this morning. We have clubs who have club funds in excess of $100,000. I have recommended that these funds be transferred to an HOA held account in a club line item for the club's future use. I feel that this would protect both the HOA and the club. Do you have any recommendations about this sort of thing? Should we move those funds or should we leave the club funds in their own bank accounts? It's difficult for me to comment on this because I don't know how what the clubs if they have like articles of incorporation, if they're a separate legal entity, if they are totally a separate legal entity, it's probably okay. It's their money. So it's okay for them to keep that there. I just don't know how closely intertwined they are with the master association here. And so at first glance, I would say no. I'm wondering if you're worried because there's so much money in there. I'm wondering if you're worried that hey, there could be a misappropriation and that could negatively impact our association. So maybe reach out to me and we can talk more about that. Okay, if a previous board approved to repair uh, an item four to two against legal advice that it is not the HRA responsibility, can the current board sue the previous board who voted against the legal advice to approve the repair and how can those expenses be recouped? 
This is a sticky wicket for sure. I don't know what the dollar amount is here. Is this like a million dollars? Is this 100,000? Is this 50,000? Is this 200 bucks? I don't know. The bottom line is if you sue a previous board for actions that they've done, it's basically as the board, if you're suing a prior board, it's basically like suing yourself because the prior board is going to turn the matter over to the association's insurance carrier and the association's insurance carrier is going to defend the former board members. And it just doesn't make sense to do that because the association, the current board members is going to be paying an attorney to defend them. And the former board members are using association paid attorneys to defend them. And it's going to result in a black mark on our insurance policy and potentially could raise rates. So really, you got to look at this from a financial perspective. Does it make sense to sue ourselves? Probably not. So you want to reach out to your legal counsel to talk about this. At first glance, I would say this doesn't sound like something that's a good idea to do. Sometimes previous boards make mistakes or sometimes they have reasons for why they do this. So you may want to do a little more research, find out why specifically this was decided this way. I don't like it that they voted against taking legal advice for the association that potentially could be considered a breach of fiduciary responsibility, but it just may not make business sense to pursue them. Next question, number 42, our association is considering establishing a policy regarding how to handle damages to common walls and property, as well as damages to shared walls between owners that is caused by one owner. We have repetitive instances where owners of properties that have rear yard view walls constructed a four foot fence block, four feet high with wrought iron above are allowing their aggressive dogs to repetitively run and hit the walls, doing to seeing people in the common areas in our playground or when walking or biking and breaking the walls then asking and demanding that the association pay for all or part of the damages they've caused. The other situation is a large financial issue, water damage, both common and shared walls caused by one owner. What advice would you give us about policies and procedures? Really the best advice I can give you is it's probably already in your CCNRs how to handle this situation. So maintenance of walls is very common that the provisions are already in your documents. And it's also very common that if an owner causes damage to the wall by their behavior, whether it's overwatering or whether it's the first for me to hear an animal breaking the wall. But I think any of these issues, as long as you have evidence to support why the wall was damaged, there are provisions in the documents that say that if an owner causes damage to something, they're responsible for it. So likely your association already has this information in the documents and you don't even need to pass policies and procedures on this. You just need to look at things on a case-by-case basis. But I encourage you to reach out to me if you have any further questions on this and maybe how we can interpret your documents to help you through this problem. Next question, number 43. So this is, we are down to our last four questions. So we may have board members who are more interested in furthering their personal agenda rather than enforcing the current CCNRs. They may have been denied approval by the architectural committee and now wish to go through the amending process for guidelines and CCNRs to support their position. So I hate to see stuff like this, but it does happen. Sometimes people get on the board for the wrong reasons. They are upset about something and they get on the board so they can get what they want or whatever. Recognize, though, that if there's a check and balance here, because 
let's say you've got a board member that's trying to do this, push their agenda. They need a homeowner vote. And usually it's a high homeowner vote to amend the documents. It may be the board member's agenda, but they need the vote of the membership to change things. So I think there is a check and balance in here. And to say that this is something that's unusual, it's not unusual. There are times where you have board members that get on the board just for this sole purpose. But the check and balance is in place that they're going to need the vote of the membership in order to amend the documents. Okay, next question. Number 44. Can all homeowners in a condo HOA request to view the full financials? Currently, we get one page. So short answer on that is yes. Under the Arizona books and records laws that pertain to HOAs and condos, owners are allowed to inspect and copy the financial records of the association. And that includes all financial records. So what I would recommend is that you make a records request in writing and ask for the specific things that you want to see. Now, just from being in the trenches, I can tell you that the things that you really should ask for would be the year-to-date budget, the balance sheet for the association, the check register, the bank statements for the association. That should be sufficient to give you a 360 view of how things are going. Next question. If last two questions, if a management company calls and reminds a homeowner about accounts not paid in full because of a budget increase, isn't that almost crossing collection concerns? And do you think the community manager has time to call all homeowners that do this? I think this is probably a follow-up question to something that I said earlier in the questions. I was just giving um, options. So if there has been an increase and we have a handful of owners who aren't paying the increase in the assessment rate, I was just saying the friendly neighborly thing to do, if there's just a few, would be just to give them a reminder call. It could be a board member, it could be a manager. And I 100% get that managers are don't have any time because being a manager is really a very demanding position. You are going from fire to fire. So that may not work for every association, but if you have a couple, two or three owners who are shorting their assessment payment, it couldn't hurt to have a board member or manager do a friendly phone call to remind them. Or you can send a letter, continue to send letters or emails, or give it to your attorney to send a more formal letter demanding that they pay the increased rate or we're going to need to find them. So there's no one one fix for that. Just do what works best for your association. Okay, we are on our last question for today. What are the steps for the board and management company to follow? What are the steps for the board and management company in following a board announcement for a call for candidates in a meeting? Dates, timeframe, guidelines, communication requirements for the membership. Okay, so I'm not sure. I'm guessing that this is maybe for the board and the management following. Okay, this question, I'm struggling a little bit with what you're asking, but I'm guessing that you're asking for candidates um, to maybe run for your board. This question is really hard for me to understand exactly what you want. But so if you are asking for candidates in a meeting, I'm not sure when you would be doing that, but let's say that you're looking for board members to serve on your board. If it's in a board meeting, you could ask people to submit their names and maybe a brief bio if they're interested in running on the board. Maybe give them a reasonable period of time, like a week or two weeks to respond. I think that would be a reasonable time frame to do that. Okay, sorry, I couldn't answer that question better, but I didn't understand fully what you were trying to ask. Okay, so we're at the end of our presentation. It's exactly nine, nine, 
Yes, 1030. I'm sorry. It's exactly 1030. And we had a great turnout today. We had at, at different points, we had over 60 people here in, in person on Zoom. And we had a number of you joining us on Facebook Live. Thank you so much for being here today for the presentation. We have one additional free learning opportunity in the month of March 2022. That learning opportunity is going to be for our firm's 2022 virtual HOA and Condo Academy. It's class number three, our March class. It's going to be on Tuesday, March 15th, 2022, right here on Zoom and also Facebook Live from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And the question is going to be talking about how to run legal and effective board meetings and annual meetings. And we're going to be covering everything from how to handle disagreements at board meetings, how to have an hour board meeting, how to take minutes how to run an effective annual meeting and in compliance with the law, how to deal with emails and board members that want to email in violation of the open meeting law. We're going to cover all these topics and we're going to be live to answer any of your questions as well. So we hope that you will consider joining us on Tuesday, March 15th at 11 a.m. for our 2022 virtual HOA condominium class. And our next live virtual First Friday event is going to be the first Friday in April, which will be April 1st. So make sure you put that on your calendars. Don't forget to be checking our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Our upcoming seminars tab has great information about our seminars that we'll be having in March all the way through the end of 2022. Also, please consider following us on social media, our Facebook page or Instagram page for updates and reminders. And we just are so appreciative that you're here today. We hope to see you on March 15th for our next class. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. So take care, everybody. Look forward to seeing you in the future. Bye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 